0: Hey, y'all. I'm Mary Payne Gilbert, and this is my podcast, Pain in the Pod. Today, I have Dave Cawley of the incredible podcast, Cold. Here's the backstory of the podcast, and many of you probably remember this story. Susan Powell went missing December 7th, 2009. Her husband, Josh, took their two young sons out camping in the middle of the night in a blizzard in Utah, he says, and he came back to find her missing. Josh was a suspect from the beginning, but on February 5th, 2012, Josh slammed the door in the face of a social worker who was bringing his children for a supervised visit, and he blew them all up in their house. And in May 2013, the case was declared cold. Dave has created an amazing podcast about this bizarre and heartbreaking case. Dave gained access to personal diaries and quite a bit of audio content from Josh and his dad, Steve, along with interviews with family, friends, and law enforcement. Dave, thank you so much for joining me. We have to get right into it.
1: You bet. Thanks, Mary Payne.
0: Okay. Tell me how you decided to start this podcast.
1: This for me really went back to my job as a reporter here in Salt Lake City, covering the case when it all unfolded. Uh Um, You know, I was working in the same city where Josh and Susan and their boys lived, West Valley City, not too far away from where they lived, honestly. And I followed Josh and his actions when he moved to Washington after Susan's disappearance and this police investigation. And as you mentioned, when this case was declared cold, there were still so many unanswered questions. And, uh, you know, In the life of a reporter, you move on, you cover different stories every day, and uh, when there's nothing new happening, you tend to just kind of put that story away and not think about it. But for me, this story really kept... Coming up in my memory, it kept bothering me not having answers as to, you know, why the police did what they did. How did somebody like Josh manage to evade being arrested for, you know, more than two years in this case? How was he allowed to have those kids at his house uh, where he committed that just awful, awful murder-suicide? And so I, on my personal time after, you know, coming home from a day's work, would grab the case file and start reading and and taking notes. And I started noticing that there were references to all of these, you know, these audio journals and these recordings. And I thought, I want to hear those because I want to know what the police were doing and, and what these interviews were all about. And it just started down the rabbit hole of digging up all of this additional information and then once I started getting some of that back, the question was, what do I do with it? Um, you know, my job is to tell stories on the radio in thirty seconds, and I've got, <laughs> I've got this audio that you can't really do that. And so uh, I went to my boss, and we decided that the best format to do this was going to be a, a long-form podcast, and that's that's how Cold came about.
0: So, how long has it been since you've been reading these files and going through this information? I mean, it has to have taken you years.
1: Yeah, it really did. Um, So when the case was declared cold in 2013, we got our first glimpse of the case file. I really started going through it in detail uh, about late 2014, early 2015. So I mean, I've been working on this for three going on four years.
0: My gosh, I mean, do you think that there will ever be a resolution or will it always be cold because all the key players are dead?
1: Ah, it's so tough to say. Um, I sure hope for for the people who knew Susan, cared for Susan, that someday they'll be able to say definitively, we understand now, you know, we we can in our own minds um, kind of lay her to rest and, and put this behind us and move on. Mm-hmm. But my review of the case is, you know, leading me to a possible conclusion that there there might not be a body to find. Uh, we don't know what Josh did, presuming that he killed Susan. Uh, but, but I think there's pretty clear indication that he planned for quite a while to uh, commit a murder in a way that you would not have a body to find. So whether that means that it was, you know— dumped down a mine, which a lot of people have, have searched mines looking for her, or that uh, maybe the body was, you know, cremated or something along those lines. Ultimately, for me, what it comes back to is I want to bring as much information forward, report all the facts that we have so that um, we can draw, you know, conclusions that are based on on factual information, and then ultimately use that information to say, even if we can't find Susan... Let's find a way to take her story and make it do good for another young woman who might uh, be in the same situation.
0: Right. And you referenced that at the beginning and the end of your podcast about, Uh you know, if you're in a situation and how to contact domestic abuse hotlines, which I always think is great because you never know who's listening and who may see themselves in that story. I was looking at your website yesterday and the way that you organized the podcast I was thinking, I was just thinking of how overwhelming the sheer volume of the audio recordings and the diaries and the case files. And how would you even get started to get it organized? And then I was, I saw sort of how you did it with the podcast, each podcast being about a different aspect. And I commend you on that because I can't even, I can't wrap my head around the amount of stuff that you had to go through. And how was it reading those diaries? How how, oh. how was that? I mean, that seems like it would just hurt your heart, you know?
1: It, yeah, it's it's absolutely awful. Um, this podcast, this story, deals with some very dark subjects, as you are aware. And, you know, part of what motivated me when, when I read those journals, you have a man, Steve Powell, Susan's father-in-law, who is deeply obsessed with her, who is writing, in essence, His pornographic fantasies over the course of years about what he wants to do with and to his his own daughter-in-law, and it is the word disturbing doesn't even begin to describe. Um, You know, Steve Powell ended up going to prison for child pornography, voyeurism crimes. Even that, even in his trial, they they barely scratched the surface of what was in here. And I wanted to use this platform to expose that. Man, for who he was, and allow people to see. You know, sometimes you're confronted by a person who you've you've you sense that there's something just not quite right, and and this might be why. I mean, there's a secret life that this man was living. Um, we're talking thousands and thousands of pages just for his journals, and that's a a small segment. So for me, it was you know, sit down, read through that, take notes on it. And establish a timeline. Then you had to compare that timeline to you know the police case file to Josh and Susan's life, and that's why it took so so long to to put this podcast together. Is because there was just this huge volume of material, and then dealing with the stuff that was really heavy. I mean, I could read that for an hour or two, and then I had to I had to put it down and go do something else just for my own sanity.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you had to clear your brain of it. That I mean. Susan's had to be heartbreaking because she knew that the weirdo stepdad was obsessed with her and then she knew mm-hmm. her husband was no good and was telling people if something happens to me it's going to be my husband. She was preparing for it. She had you know things hidden, I mean, and had told her friends and to read that and then to read Steve's I, I don't know. I I can't, I cannot wrap my brain around what a controlling father he was to those children and then to have them all at the end be on his side most of them except for Jennifer right
1: right yeah Mary Payne I mean you put your you put your finger on something that's very important to me and that's this idea that abuse can perpetuate generation by generation And the way that Steve Powell groomed his children when when you really start uh, kind of examining the way he talked to them, the way he, you know, undermined Josh and Susan's relationship. And and then you see Jennifer, who the oldest daughter, she was a teenager when her dad was uh, basically trying to manipulate her this way. And she describes in the podcast, making a conscious choice to not follow his example and and instead try to lead a, a better life. And I am so personally impressed with the courage that she showed. I mean, we we uh, got this audio of her going and confronting her brother while wearing a secret wire. Yes, and and the courage that that took uh, is just astounding to me.
0: Yes, that was that that made me scared. I mean, even though I know it happened, it made me scared in that episode because she pulled him to the side in a bathroom while wearing a wire, and it's like there's a van, you know, down the street in case it gets bad, and she had a safe word, and there's a helicopter, and. And then what's so crazy is that all the other kids come in and are against her saying, Josh didn't do anything and leave dad alone. And I mean, deep down, those other kids, even Michael, who pe- a lot of people think had something to do with it, had to have known, of course he did it. And there, it seems like at the end of the day, what it goes down to is they're all scared of the dad.
1: They're either scared or they're, you know, they're circling around the family. And Susan's dad talked about, you know, the the families being a wolf pack. And, you know, I think at various points Steve Powell was the alpha, and other times Josh was the alpha, and and the others seemed to just kind of fall in line in that uh, in that hierarchy of the family. And it's it was a very odd dynamic. And I I think looking from the outside. A lot of us would say, how in the world did, you know, this family convince themselves that uh, Josh was, you know, innocent and that he was being framed by the police? And as you pointed out, you know, uh, for Michael, the, the youngest of the the Powell boys, it's <laughs> it's questionable whether or not he actually ever thought that or was just playing the part because he probably had uh, some knowledge of, of what Josh had done. It, it's, it just is—I I can't even— I come from a great family. I mean, but if my brother told me that he had killed his wife, you better believe that I'd be talking to the police about it. It's it's just mind-blowing.
0: That's that's the thing. So where there are five kids, right? So there's I was trying to kind of count as I went through. There's there was John and Michael and Josh and then Alina and Jennifer.
1: Right. So chronologically, it would be Jennifer's the oldest, then Josh, John, Michael and Alina.
0: Oh, okay. Jennifer's the oldest. So I wonder if her birth order has something to do with the way she was able to sort of escape his mind control or she was just very aligned with her mother, I wonder.
1: I I think it is part of, you know, her age coming into play there, because, uh, you know, if you think about Michael and Alina, when when Steve and his wife divorced back in the 90s, they were young kids and very impressionable. And Steve Powell was doing things like, uh, you know, showing up at, at school and taking them out of school to, you know, lunch when he didn't have parental custody to be able to doing to, to do that kind of stuff. He was, you know, telling them how bad their mom was for wanting to take them to church. And uh, there's some pretty good indication that he was, you know, giving the the younger kids uh, alcohol and, and pornography when they were, you know, well below the age at which that would even be legal and so jennifer being a little older has more opportunity to see the situation for what it is to recognize the way that steve was acting whereas i think those younger kids were were a little more uh kind of under his thumb
0: is josh's mother still alive
1: She is. uh, And, you know, I've had a phone conversation with her. She, from the very beginning, has kept uh, uh, an incredibly low profile. She told me that, you know, she did not want to be interviewed. um, And and I respect that. You know, if if somebody tells me that uh, they don't want to talk, I'm not there to badger them. But uh, certainly it would be it would be fascinating to get her take on how all of this played out.
0: I can't imagine how she feels because she, of course, was a victim as well of Steve. And I think like a lot of women from that era and that are very religious just thought, well, you know, we're married and I have to make it work. And now we have all these children. And so it is impressive that she eventually got away. And the saddest thing is that the kids would sort of bounce back and forth their allegiance. Josh even bounced back and forth with his allegiance you know, blaming his mother and then being with his mother and then Steve filling their head with how horrible the mother was. And then you find that pattern repeated when after Susan was missing and the daycare providers said that uh, Charlie and Brayden were saying things about, oh, if you're a Mormon, you're horrible. And we are allowed to curse at home. And so it seems like Josh was doing the same thing, sort of coaxing his children like against the religion, but yet then going to church.
1: Yeah, it, it's very interesting to watch the way Josh Powell's kind of religious sentiment changed over time. And the pattern that starts showing up is that he appears to uh, become religious when there's something to be gained by it. If he can get help moving, then he'll show up to church for a little while to convince, you know, the people at church to to come help him unload his U-Haul. When that's done, he stops uh certainly telling his kids you know that the that the Mormon police are bad and that the Mormon police are out to get him. Uh, you know you're you're telling this to a five year old um, and and the five year old is repeating it, and it's obviously not something that you know Charlie Powell, the the oldest of the you know Josh and Susan's boys, was thinking of on his own. He was hearing this inside the home and and I think you're absolutely right in that it just goes to show again that you know Steve groomed. Josh, and Josh was in the process of grooming his boys uh, when he ultimately lost custody of them and ended up uh, taking their lives.
0: It's so devastating. And when I was talking to someone else yesterday, Aaron Martin, on a podcast about it, and she said, no spoilers, like, don't say what happened. And I said, listen, it's a 10-year-old case. There's <laughs> right. no spoilers. I mean, I heard about it you know, in real time when it was happening, and not as much as you probably did there in Utah, but it was on the news um, when she went missing, and then it was on the national news, of course, when he blew up the house. But in researching this to talk to you, there was a little piece there that I forgot was that he had a hatchet Mm-hmm. And he chopped them up before he blew up the house. Now, explain that logic. I mean, I don't, I, I can't understand the evil in that. And, you know, I'm like, why didn't he take his dad along with him, you know?
1: Right, right. You know, I I can't put myself in Josh Powell's head, uh, especially in that moment. I think anybody who, you know, commits That kind of a crime and and takes a life in that way is clearly not well. Josh, using the hatchet, uh, the indication that I have from talking to law enforcement, the people who actually, you know, went into that burned out house and and saw the bodies was uh, essentially he used that to immobilize uh, the kids. So, you know, a strike to the to the back of the neck. Um, And it's just it's so brutal. And and part of what is so frustrating about this case is, you know, Susan clearly understood that she was an abused spouse, but right up until the time she disappeared, she was saying things like, you know, Josh would pretty much have to beat me for me to leave. She's he's not physically hitting her. And so she resists, uh, you know, labeling herself as a, a, a victim or somebody who's going through domestic abuse and it hit me pretty hard when I was researching this case that I I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, this wasn't domestic violence. This wasn't domestic violence. And then, you know, I had to stop myself and say, wait a minute, you have a woman who was probably murdered by her husband. You have two boys who were brutally attacked and then basically killed by fire. Like this is the worst case of domestic violence. It just wasn't violent up until the moment that it was. And, So telling all of those grim details, the reason this matters is because there's a progression, right, from the way he's treating her going back to when they very first met and were dating, the way he's talking about he loves her because, you know, she treats his stuff the way it should be treated, not not viewing her as an independent you know valuable person on her own merits it's how she treats him how she treats his property that's why he loves her that's a warning sign and it it's, took about, years. it's about him
0: it's not about it's her. about him
1: yeah, yeah it, it's this narcissism and so and so you you've got to you've got to call that out way back when it happens because the violence does come it just doesn't come in a way that we expect
0: you're right. When you think of domestic abuse, you think of somebody getting uh, slapped around or beaten up, you know, weekly or daily, but it can come in the form of mind control and mental abuse. And he's, you know, probably holding the kids over her head, like, well, you know, I'm going to leave you and take the kids. And what do you have? And really, she had the money because he was always sort of a 'er ne'er-do-well and not having a job and relying on her to make money. I mean, I don't know. He was when you look back at it, you think, well, the poor guy didn't have a chance with a dad like that, you know?
1: Right, right. But
0: then you think about Jennifer, well, she turned out just fine.
1: It, it comes down to choices, you know? I, I, and you, I think, hinted at this where Josh would, you know, bounce back and forth between his mom and his dad. And from reading his journals, listening to those audio journals, he talks about feeling happy, when he is doing what he knows is right, when he's living, you know, according to his faith, when he is doing well with his mom, he doesn't talk about his dad being somebody that he loves in, in any of his writings. And yet he keeps going back to his dad. And and I think it, it comes back to this idea that, you know, Josh made a conscious decision to align himself with his dad and to not do the difficult thing in in kind of self-reflecting and seeing the ways in which he was acting as being not appropriate and not treating his wife the way she deserved to be treated. And so if there's a lesson for me, I, I think it's, you know, A, like I just said, you've got to watch for those early warning signs. But B, you also have to reflect on yourself and say, you know, in my own personal relationships, am I doing all I can to treat the people around me well, do you know, am I telling the people, my friends, my family, my my spouse? Am I telling these people that I love them? Am I am I going out of my way to make someone's day better? And and this is something that you just you really don't see Josh do and it just, you know, it it makes your heart break for Susan.
0: Yeah, because I think in the beginning she thought, "Wow, look at this, you know, cute, nice guy who seems to have some great attributes and she loved him." And you know, but as you see with these cases, you know, slowly but surely, he didn't start out being a monster because she was smart enough not to fall in love with someone like that. Now, in your opinion, what do you think actually happened to Susan? And maybe by the end of your podcast, we'll have a, be- a better uh, whole rounded picture of it. But in your opinion, what do you think happened that day that she went missing?
1: It's so tough uh, because my my thought process on this evolves constantly. I will tell you that when I started out, you know, having covered the case originally when it happened, I had formed some opinions along the way and I wanted to make sure I was coming at this with a fresh perspective. So I kind of set all of my preconceived notions aside and I thought I'm going to see where the evidence takes me. And a lot of people uh, here in Utah nationally that have that have followed this case, I think look at, you know, Steve Powell and the way he acted and they think Steve had to have been involved in some way. And I feel like by the time this podcast is done, we'll be able to pretty definitively say Steve Powell actually was not involved in Susan's disappearance and probably didn't even really have any inside information. Really? Yeah, it it's, it's crazy knowing his obsession with her and stuff, but the evidence doesn't support uh, that he was. You know, for me, I think Josh had a plan. Uh, my read of the situation is if you look at all the time that he spent putting life insurance in order, getting a power of attorney for Susan, setting up this trust so that he could take control of her finances once she was gone. Clearly, there was some premeditation there. Uh, you know, he's taking trips out to the desert months before, under the guise of this being a family vacation. When I think you could also argue this was, you know, him doing some reconnaissance, some planning. Um, I, you know, I think his desert camping trip uh, was supposed to be his alibi. I believe that he probably—so if you believe that Josh wanted to collect the life insurance, he knows that Susan's body has to be found. So if he just wants to kill her to kill her, he's going to get rid of her in a way that she can never be found. But if you believe that that life insurance was a motivating factor, then to me it seems logical that he wanted her to be found. He wanted to be able to say— that uh, she'd been kidnapped on her way to work, or you know, somebody hit her with her car, or something like that. And so he comes back from this trip, not expecting the police to already be aware that they that she was missing having been inside the house and found her purse and her keys because he hadn't finished, you know, cleaning up inside the house and setting the stage the way he wanted.
0: And the stain on the couch with the with the fan blowing on it.
1: Right, exactly. So all of the little details that he, you know, he was going to probably come back home and finish setting up the scene so that he could then be the one who comes forward and goes, you know, my wife didn't come home from work. Where is she? And he tries to do this, uh, but it's too late because the police have already started their investigation.
0: I wonder, too, if he wasn't trying to make sure that his dad didn't get her. So he's going to get her out of the picture to help his dad along so he's not obsessed with her and to make sure his dad can never have her.
1: And again, I don't know what's in Josh's pal's head. My, my personal take on the situation, I mean, they were... They were living a couple states away. Steve Powell had never visited the house in Utah because Susan wouldn't allow it. I think more than anything, Josh was just tired of, of Susan. He didn't like being married to her anymore because she was straight down the line with her faith. She was not going to bend and she was starting to exert her independence. And for somebody who was, you know, contributing the paycheck, who was doing all the child care, who was basically feeding Josh. The the thought of her becoming independent and saying, you know, what, I'm going to leave and I'm going to take these kids away and we're going to we're going to exit your life forever. Josh wasn't going to allow that. And so he came up with this plan to you know, financially set himself up well and then exit her from the picture.
0: Do you think He killed her in the house and then somehow got her in the car and then woke the boys up in the middle of the night, put them in the car asleep and drove to wherever he took her. But there was no evidence of her really, you know, in the car. That's kind of what I don't understand.
1: Yeah. I mean, if he took her in the car, um, it could have happened a couple of different ways. And that's part of why I think we never saw an arrest or charges in this case, because to this day, it's too difficult to to paint a Concrete picture of what happened inside that house. Clearly something happened on the couch. Mm -hmm. But the forensic evidence doesn't give us any clue as to whether that was, you know, was it vomit? Was it blood? What was it that he cleaned off of the couch? Uh, I I think it's probably likely that, you know, the only way he would have got Susan in the minivan that night uh, willingly on her part would be if, if he told her maybe that, hey, you know, you're not feeling well. Let's let's go to the hospital or something along those lines. But that's entirely speculative. We, we just don't know.
0: Right. Or he put her in Michael's car and then followed him or something. Oh, my gosh. And then another sad twist is that uh, Michael killed himself, a what, a year after Josh and the boys died? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and this is going to be coming up in great detail in, in the coming episodes. But what we see with Michael is... You know, the police get this wiretap on Josh and Steve Powell's phones in 2011.
0: That was fascinating when you were talking to that detective about that. I loved that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and him not wanting to talk about it.
0: He was like, allegedly. <laughs> right, right.
1: Doing doing the cop face. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, all of a sudden, Michael comes into much greater focus for the police and they realize there's this relationship between Josh and his youngest brother that if, if Josh shared anything about what happened to Susan, it probably was with Michael. And, you know, the two of them are, are trying to avoid, uh, police eavesdropping by, you know, communicating over encrypted email or, you know, voice over IP phones and things like that. And as soon as, uh, Michael starts realizing that now he is under suspicion uh, he starts taking steps to protect himself. Uh, you know, the police tell him, hey, we found your car that you sold for $100 to a scrapyard in Oregon two weeks after Susan disappeared. And Michael immediately turns around and asks a satellite imaging company if they can, you know, provide him with a picture of that salvage yard so he can see whether or not his car is still there. Wow. Uh, which shows you, you know, that he's clearly concerned that uh, that something's, you know, coming for him in terms of maybe an arrest And then uh, before the police can get there, he jumps off of a parking garage in Minneapolis and and ends his own life.
0: Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. You know, there's just the only shining light in it, I guess, is that Jennifer's okay. I want. So I assume Alina is still alive. I wonder, you know, do you know any of the other siblings feelings on you doing this podcast?
1: You know, I'm not sure about the podcast. Uh, Alina and the other surviving uh, pal sibling, John, um, you know, I've kind of kept my eye on on where they are at. But Alina was, uh, you heard in that wire recording that, you know she was not very kind to Jennifer and and said some very quite mean things about Susan when Susan was still very much just a missing person yes and after Steve Powell was convicted uh you know of of crimes and sent to prison Alina posted a website where she basically said all of the evidence against him is fabricated and you know Josh Powell was a victim of of police malfeasance so it seems to me that there is a, an unwillingness to confront the facts uh, in this case on on her part, but I've not had a chance to speak to her myself
0: oh my gosh oh my gosh okay so what's what's next for you after spending so many years on this case I mean would would you take on a big case like then like this again and tackle it you know in a long form podcast you know do you have it in you
1: <laughs> yeah that's a great question um I can tell you Mary Payne that Getting this deep in a, in a case that deals with such dark topics, um, it, takes, it does take a psychological toll, and it's not something that I do for fun. I mean, true crime as a genre, you know, is something that I try to be careful with because I think you can overdo it. And I certainly like the process of investigating. I like finding facts and presenting them to people, allowing you know, the public to have greater clarity on, on a story or a case like this. And so, you know, there are certainly cases from my career that I go back to that I, I would like to do this again. But I also think that for my own sanity, I, I probably need to take a little bit of time away and uh, kind of flush out the the subconscious a little bit and then kind of assess, is this something that I'm prepared to do again?
0: Yeah, I, I can't imagine even just reading the things and then the way that you put it together, and I don't know it's 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 just just blow my mind. It's just been great, and like I um, I told you before we were recording that I had many requests for you to come on my podcast, and uh, a friend of mine initially told me about it, and I was like, how did I not hear about this? And then of course I just went right in. And so how many episodes will there be of cold? I'm, and I'm total? still
1: uh, so. <laughs> I'll be perfectly candid with you. Uh, when we launched, I was about mm, four episodes ahead. And right now that lead is completely gone. So Ooh. you know, I yeah, it's scary. Um <laughs> I, I have a roadmap and and we're we're definitely cruising toward the end of that. I think we're, you know, we're we're well past halfway at this point. Uh but but I've hesitated to put a total number on it because there are still some pieces in the air. Uh what will probably happen is that within you know, the next uh, handful of episodes, I'll say we're done for now, but we may come back with more depending on, you know, if this investigation, which is still ongoing, turns up anything new. So uh, I know that's a, a kind of a wishy-washy answer, but uh, probably somewhere greater than 15, less than 20.
0: <laughs> greater than 15, less than 20. OK, well, that's great. I mean, it's, it's good for us as listeners that are— our- really into it and really, you know, enjoying it, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. um, fascinated by it, I would say. So tell me what podcasts you listen to in your leisure time when you're not into this true crime.
1: Yeah. Uh, So uh, quite a few. Um, Honestly, one of the podcasts that very early on got me interested in podcasting at all is actually one called Daring Fireball. Okay. It's totally not related to any of this topic matter. It's a, it's a, a blogger named John Gruber who talks about uh, Apple and, and the tech community. Um, I, I've loved that show. I've, I've listened to that for a very long time. Here locally in Utah, uh, I actually work with some folks who put out some, some great podcasts that I, I really enjoy listening to. Uh, I follow the Utah Jazz, so my buddy Cleon Wall does one called Jazz Notes that I like to listen to. Um, you know, nationally, uh, Conan O'Brien's new podcast. I've been giving that a shot lately. Yes, and, that's a uh, good one. And, and I've enjoyed that. So it's kind of all over the spectrum. I, I like a little comedy. I like a little news. Uh, you know, there, there. of course, are all of the, all of the great other true crime podcasts. I've, I've dabbled a little bit, but uh, haven't wanted to go too deep simply because I don't want to uh, be in a place where I'm thinking, oh, darn it, I should have done it the way, you know, so-and-so did their podcast, so.
0: You know, I hear that a lot, um, especially people that do recaps of shows or they talk about reality TV or they talk about pop culture, that even though they're friends with a lot of these podcasters, that they don't really listen because they don't want to copy or be jealous (laughs) or or, or think, gosh, I should have done that. That was a really funny idea.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As you well know, there are a lot of people doing podcasts right now, and it's great. As somebody who came up you know, telling stories on the radio, I love that people are finding audio fascinating again. It's, it's great. Um, but at the same time, it's so hard now to stand out from the crowd. And I'm very humbled personally that, that Colt has done so well because when I was working on this, I for a long time thought, you know, maybe, maybe a couple hundred, maybe a few thousand people will listen to it and, and that will be great and uh I've been one hundred percent just overwhelmed by the response to it, and uh I'm so grateful that that people have been willing to invest their time and to give me a chance.
0: Well, you've done a great job, and, like I said, I can't even imagine the hours and months and years that you've spent because it's such such a large volume of of information that you've you know accessed and then pared it down for us to hear so Again, I love it and I appreciate it. So tell my listeners where they can find out all about your podcast and how to follow you and uh, your website and all that.
1: Yep, you bet. So our website for the podcast is just thecoldpodcast.com. We have a page for every single episode with an article that includes, you know, pictures and video and multimedia from the case as well. So if you want to go deeper, that's available uh, active on Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Instagram at The Cold Podcast on all of those platforms. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed seeing people's uh, Instagram stories. I mean, people will post reaction, you know, videos mm. of, oh my gosh, I'm listening to the latest episode. Uh, you know, Steve Powell's creepy song seemed to be a, a favorite thing for people to uh, <laughs> to react to.
0: Yeah, let's don't forget about Steve Powell's album of songs that he wrote about oh. his daughter-in-law.
1: Oh my gosh, it's so unbelievable. I mean, the, there is, I will say, for as horrible as this, this story is, there are also times when I just have to laugh because it's so absurd. Right. And that's one of those things that uh, that's crazy. So, yeah, I love interacting with people on social. We actually have a, a subreddit that uh, people are posting questions uh, and, and talking about the case on as well. And that's, uh, you know, on Reddit is uh, the cold podcast as well.
0: Oh, I didn't know about that. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I know you're busy, and I look forward to the future episodes, and I'm glad to know it's not ending soon, because that always (laughs) makes me sad when a podcast that I love is ending. So thank you so much, and I hope everybody will go and listen to Cold. Thanks, Mary Payne. Okay, thanks.